Welcome to the Nourish Nervous System, an exploration of stress, the nervous system, and transformative self-care practices for parents and other humans through the lenses of Ayurveda, holistic coaching, somatics, herbs, and much, much more. I'm the host, Kristen Timchak. I'm a holistic life coach, Ayurvedic educator, herbalist, and mother of a tiny human. Join me for information, insight, deep thoughts, and small steps to help you nourish your nervous system. Hello, welcome, and welcome back to episode 10. I am so incredibly grateful that you're here, that you're listening, and if you want to connect more, you can email me at kristen at nourishnervousystem.com. I'd love to hear your stories or what you're interested in learning about on this podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at Nourished Nervous System. You can DM me or comment on a post. I'm not the most social media savvy person, so if it takes me a minute to get back, just know that it's nothing personal, that it just takes me a minute. I'm just grateful to have you here, and I know that there's so many podcasts and so many things that you can be doing with your time, and so I just appreciate you taking the time to listen here, and I hope that I'm able to give you value. Okay, let's get into this week's episode. This week's episode is about neuroplasticity and how what you think and feel shapes your world. I absolutely love this topic. I'm not a neuroscientist, but I've been studying and practicing this concept in many ways for many years. I'm really fascinated by the brain and I love learning more about it, but I first encountered this concept that what you think influences your life about 20 years ago as a volunteer at Kripalu Yoga Institute. And it had nothing to do with neuroscience or the things that we now know. I was doing a volunteer work program called the Spiritual Lifestyles Program, or SLP for short. I worked in the kitchen cutting vegetables and attended yoga classes, share circles, and other programs that were specifically for the volunteers. One of the classes that we had as volunteers was about manifestation. It was about how what we think, say, and visualize can change our outer circumstances. I had experienced this before in my life, the imagining of a certain reality and then the serendipitous circumstances that would bring it to fruition. When I learned that this was actually a practice with ancient roots, it felt like some kind of spiritual magic. One experience that leaps out was a few years after completing the spiritual lifestyles program, I moved from New Hampshire to the Berkshires to work at Kripalu. I think I was 28 and this was a big leap for me. I left a long-term relationship, a teaching job at a Montessori school and my community to follow some thread that I couldn't ignore. So I landed with a friend in Lenox, Massachusetts and started looking for an apartment. It'd be my first time living without housemates in my adult life. And I imagined this beautiful apartment with wood floors and lots of light, a place with character that I could fill with plants and I could imagine how it felt there. It felt like sanctuary, a safe place for me to make this big, scary leap. Finding this apartment proved more challenging. I was running into dead ends with places I found listed in the paper or online. They were either too expensive or they just were really not nice places to live. And one afternoon, I was sitting with a friend in the Kripalu Cafe and talking about my situation. 
Literally five minutes later, this girl walks by and my friend says, I think she may be actually moving out of her apartment soon and it's really cute. So we tracked the girl down. I'll call her Jane. And my friend introduced us and Jane was in fact moving out of her apartment. She had thrown her back out and so I agreed to help her move and she gave me her landlord's information. I emailed the landlord almost every day until he finally agreed to rent me the apartment. It was the apartment I had been envisioning. Wood floors, high ceilings, tall windows, and a great building with lots of folks living there that worked at Kripalu, and it was super affordable. The two drawbacks were a roach problem that eventually was resolved, and it was next to a grocery store, so I was often woken up in the very, very wee hours of the morning by garbage and recycling trucks. But despite those things... I loved living there. It was my sanctuary. I filled it with plants and really treasured that time of living by myself, yet having community right out my front door. I've spent a lot of my adult life in alternative spaces and have seen a lot around manifesting and the power of attraction. This idea that what we think we create and that if we just raise the vibrations of our thoughts, we will attract that same energy. I believe in these concepts and there were teachers that I felt held them in an integral way and others where I felt like something was off or missing. And at some point I had this split in myself where I believed in the power of our thoughts and visualization and affirmations, but I also felt like sometimes manifestation practices were presented in a way that felt like there wasn't an awareness around privilege and the work it takes to change subconscious patterns and beliefs. With developments in neuroscience, we've learned that the old myth that we only use 10% of our brain is false. Much of what is going on in your brain is happening subconsciously. Your brain is a part of your central nervous system and your nervous system works to keep you safe. So your nervous system is like an alarm system alerting you to potential danger and your brain is like a supercomputer that is programmed by your conscious and subconscious thoughts and beliefs. The brain is constantly making connections and scanning your surroundings for perceived threats. You're constantly receiving so many sensory inputs from the world around you, more than what your brain can efficiently process. So in order to run efficiently, your brain needs to pick and choose what it pays attention to. This is called selective attention. Your brain is always filtering the information coming to you, giving attention to some things and blocking others. I think that if your brain is like a computer, your conscious thoughts are what you're putting into the search engine. Whatever you think about, your brain will look for connections and evidence to support it, whether it's in your highest good or not. Or I also kind of think about it like uh, an algorithm on Facebook or Instagram. The things that you're clicking on and paying attention to, you get more, you notice more of that. In the story I told you about my apartment, I had the belief that I could find this apartment. I could see it and feel it. It was visceral. I was actively searching for it, and it didn't just show up right away. I didn't just think about it, and then all of a sudden, pow, there was an apartment. I went down many different avenues and was coming to a certain place of surrender when the serendipitous meeting happened that led me to my apartment. I think that place of surrender is important, as well as being open enough to life serendipity. Once that meeting happened, I could feel that it was my opportunity, and because I had that belief, I pursued it. If I was running a conscious or subconscious belief that I'm never going to find a place, or I just need to settle for something, or that things never work out for me, 
If I was operating from a lack mentality, I may not have bothered tracking down the acquaintance after she walked by in the cafe, or I may not have kept pestering the landlord. And this is where I want to acknowledge my privilege. I am a white, cisgendered, heterosexual, able-bodied woman. I move pretty freely through the world. I have my own personal limiting beliefs from my lineage and upbringing and experiences of my life. But besides from being a woman, I'm not holding other cultural or societal limiting beliefs. I didn't have the fear that the landlord wouldn't consider renting to me because of the color of my skin or sexual orientation. I didn't worry that the apartment was on the second floor with no elevator or way to get a wheelchair to it. And I'm not saying that someone of a different race, gender, sexual orientation, or level of able-bodiedness can't manifest exactly what they want or need. I just need to acknowledge that I may have less barriers, both in my subconscious mind from cultural programming and physically in the world because of inequality and prejudice. I think this is a piece that often didn't sit right with me in the manifestation culture. In this vein, I also want to acknowledge that privilege is not an indicator for happiness. There are ways that having privilege can make it easier to move through the world, for sure, and anybody can work on their mindset. Happiness feels like a whole other podcast episode, but manifesting things also doesn't necessarily lead to happiness. I've met people that have come from really hard places, but continue to find the good in life and create a life of love around them. And those people that seem to rise from adversity and others that have a fairly privileged life, but because of their mindset are constantly seeing life as their enemy and staying stuck in destructive and self-sabotaging patterns. And at the same time, I also don't want to ignore my privilege and the role it can play. So more recently, I've been looking at manifestation from a neuroscience perspective. I can definitely partake in my share of new age thought and woo. I totally believe in magic, but I'm also somewhat of a pragmatist and I love when the woo can be supported by science. And to me, this is where this is the difference between some of the manifestation rhetoric that I see around manifesting wealth and success that can feel ungrounded or influenced by privilege and the difference between rewiring our brains, which is biology. Almost anybody can rewire their brains to think more positively and create some different outcomes in their lives. And as a note here, I don't think that positivity means that you don't feel the full range of human emotions and have hard times and acknowledge things that are hard for you. I think it's actually just the opposite. You fully feel and process your emotions. You lean into things that are hard because that's often where growth and change is available. And you share about things that are hard for you because vulnerability creates connection. And at the same time, you also see the small gifts in these hard times and grow from them instead of getting mired in them. When I was in my late 20s, almost a year after I moved to that sweet apartment in the Berkshires, my father suddenly passed away. It was a shock to my system and one of the most painful experiences of my life. I went deeply into my grief and it was a transformational experience. The gems of that painful time were feeling supported by community and realizing how short and precious life is and how important it is to tell the people that we love that we love them. Humans are story-creating creatures, and how you tell your own story to others, but more importantly to yourself, matters. The pathways that you are reinforcing in your brain matter. You can't always influence the events in your life, but you do have control of the story you tell around those events. 
You can see the field business as a learning opportunity, the illness as an opportunity to rest and reprioritize, the breakup as a chance to choose yourself again. You still feel the pain, anger, sadness, but you also find the hidden gems. And sometimes it takes a minute to find them, but there's always some way that you can grow from any situation or circumstance. But I digress. Back to neuroplasticity. Until the 1960s, researchers believed that changes in the brain only took place during childhood, and that by the time we reached adulthood, our brains were fixed. We now know that this isn't the case. Through the use of neuroimaging, the field of neuron science is making leaps and bounds in understanding more about the brain and how it works. In the 1940s, there was a Canadian psychologist named Donald Hebb, and he theorized that in very simple terms, neurons that fire together, wire together. You may have heard this saying before. In recent years, there's been a lot of research supporting this theory, and it is more complex than just the simplified version, but this is a good place to start. When you're learning something new, a specific pathway of neurons fire together, and when that action or thought is repeated, it strengthens the connection of the neurons, which changes the brain and strengthens the learning. So if you think about when you were little and learning how to tie your shoes, it may have been a very difficult at first and something you had to really focus on and think about, but as you continue to practice, it became easier and easier until you get to a point where you no longer need to think about it. This is, by the way, also how habits are formed. It's essentially a neuropathway that gets strengthened through repetition. The other side of this is synaptic pruning, where neural connections that are rarely or never used eventually die. This helps the brain to function efficiently. The problem is, if the neural connections that you are reinforcing or making stronger are ones that don't benefit your life. I think this is especially true with thoughts or beliefs that are affecting the actions you take in the world. If you're wanting to make a career change, but are holding the belief that you'll never find a better job or that you aren't good enough or you're too old, your brain will filter all the information and connections that support this. I love this quote from The Source by Tara Swart. Fear is a powerful emotion and one that occupies a primal part of our brain. In this state, the parts of our brain that combine emotion and memories become overactive with red alerts, dredging up bad memories and past failures as part of a safety mechanism to protect us from danger. This creates a feedback loop that triggers a response that is tailor-made to help us run away from risk. I think this is where becoming aware of your thoughts and discerning about your thoughts becomes foundational in making change in your life. And here, I want to say that I also think it's important that the changes you are trying to make, what you are trying to manifest, is aligned with your values and what that deep part of you truly wants or needs. So your brain is constantly selecting certain information to influence your actions and deselecting other information. So if you aren't consciously bringing what you want to create into your mind, your brain doesn't know to look for it. And you may miss the serendipitous opportunities or breadcrumbs leading you on that path. If you get stuck in your fear and don't question your negative thoughts and memories, you'll stay stuck where you are because of this feedback loop and your brain's proclivity towards avoiding risk and staying safe. There's a quote by Kathy Overman that your nervous system will always choose a familiar hell over an unfamiliar heaven. The other piece of this I want to mention is how this is related to the nerve- to nervous system regulation. 
When you're in a stress response, your body is concerned with survival. Elevated levels of cortisol lead your decision-making processes to avoid taking risks. So if you're constantly living in an elevated stress response, it's like you have tunnel vision, which then makes it really hard to both rewire your brain and take the risks necessary to create change in your life. Some of the ways to improve neuroplasticity are by learning something new, especially a language or instrument, traveling to new places, getting creative, reading, meditation, getting plenty of rest and good sleep, and exercising. What I think is really interesting about this is that many of the things that improve neuroplasticity also complete the stress response cycle. I especially see meditation as a key factor in this. I think it's hard to know what your thoughts are or what you truly want when your mind is overwhelmed. It's hard to really tune into your intuition and your body when you're living in your head. There are a lot of studies showing the benefits of meditation to the brain and the physical body. And there's also some studies showing meditation being really helpful to to your brain's neuroplasticity. So I believe that there's a way that you can start to create a positive feedback loop. If you meditate and practice other activities that support neuroplasticity and completing the stress response, you may find yourself with a clearer mind and in a more open, relaxed state. And from that place, you can get clear about what you're trying to create in your life. When you're consciously bringing your intention into your mind, you're giving your brain the opportunity to make connections and look for information that supports your intention. With increased neuroplasticity, you may also be able to see more creative solutions to your problems. And with less cortisol influencing your decision-making, you may be able to take the risks you need to create the change you want. So... The good news is that you can, in fact, teach an old dog new tricks. No matter where you are on your path, you can work on rewiring neural pathways. It's not magic, but it does take consistency, commitment, time, and self-awareness. You need to become aware of your thoughts and take action. It's not enough to just think about what you want. You need to take the small steps that bring you closer to your goals. And it takes repetition. If you've been thinking a certain way for most of your life, it isn't going to change overnight. But with repetition and consistency, you can change the pathways. This is just skimming the surface of this topic. I hope to do many more episodes exploring neuroplasticity and how you use tools related to it to change your life. For your small step this week, see if you can start to implement at least one way to improve neuroplasticity. This includes learning something new. This could be as simple as reading a book about a topic you're interested in, listening to a podcast, taking a class or workshop, traveling, which doesn't have to mean an expensive or even overnight trip. You could take a day trip to a nearby town you've never been, or even take a new route home from work. Finding ways to be creative. This can also be very varied. It could be cooking, gardening, doing something with your hands like knitting, sewing, drawing, painting, creating a sculpture, doing playing Legos with your kids. There's lots of ways that you can be creative. Getting good sleep and rest and meditating and or exercise. Bonus points for doing something that also completes the stress response. And if you want to learn more about how to complete the stress response, listen to episode four, Nuts and Bolts of the Stress Response. If change and doing new things gives you anxiety or you feel a lot of resistance around it, start really small. 
take small calculated risks or make tiny changes that can help your nervous system begin to see change or risk as a positive thing instead of something threatening. Thanks for listening. I truly appreciate you. I hope you can find some time in your week to take care of yourself, to complete your stress responses, to do some activities that help to improve your neuroplasticity, and above all, stay nourished. Thanks for being here, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Nourished Nervous System. Hey there, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review. It helps new podcasts like this one get seen by other people. If you didn't like it, I hope you're not still listening. Life is way too short to listen to podcasts you don't like. 